Hello. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Tacos and Tequila. I'm Peyton. I'm Sydney. And we have another spooky Halloween story for the month of October to share with everyone. Ooh. I think it's a good one. <laughs> it's interesting. I had never heard of it before. I and hadn't heard of it either. I googled Halloween murders and this is how we got here. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so, um, I guess buckle in folks and we can get started. Woo! Tell us about it, Peyton. Set the scene. <laughs> a doorbell ring just after 11 p.m. on Halloween is definitely a bit of a shock when you aren't expecting visitors, especially when it's a school night. And that's just what this doorbell call did, surprise the residents in the house who had already retired for the evening. However, the events that would happen next would change the course of several people's lives, and the tale that would unfold had so many twists and turns, it's almost unbelievable. This is the story of the trick-or-treat murder. On October 31st, 1957, 35-year-old Peter Fabiano, his wife Betty, and Peter's teenage stepdaughter, Judy Solomon, were all at home this quiet Thursday evening. Betty's older son, Richard, had also visited that day and had already left to return back to his Navy base in San Diego. The family had just settled into bed for the night when there was a doorbell ring. Peter begrudgingly got out of bed and went downstairs to see who it was. When he answered the door, he was face-to-face with a person wearing a Halloween mask, wearing a Halloween mask, odd clothes resembling a costume, red gloves, and holding a paper bag. From the bedroom, Betty could hear her husband answer the door and ask yes, and although there was no response, Betty could hear Peter then say, isn't it a little late for this? Betty recounted she heard two voices, one sounding masculine and one like a man trying to impersonate a female's voice, but she could not make out any response that was said. All she heard was a loud gunshot that went off. Both Betty and her daughter Judy ran out of the bedrooms at the sound of the pop, as they described it, and rushed downstairs to find Peter lying on his back on the floor just inside the front door. Judy immediately rushed to a neighbor's home two doors down, and this neighbor, Bud Alper, was an L.A. police officer in the valley. I thought that was pretty convenient. There's always a police officer involved, like, down the <laughs> well, street. Yeah, well, and the way I read it was, like, Judy had ran to the neighbor that was, like, two houses down on purpose because she knew he was a cop. Interesting. I guess it's smart because he immediately True. called the police and several officers and an ambulance were there within minutes. Peter was rushed to the hospital, but he ended up dying due to a massive bleeding from the gunshot wound that he he had. The police were kind of at a loss at first. One 15-year-old witness saw a car speeding out of the neighborhood around the time of the shooting, 
But other than that, there were no, no real immediate leads or witnesses. The boy didn't even have like a maker model of the car. And there were no spent shell casings or evidence it was a robbery gone wrong. Immediately, the police believed it may be mob-related since it had all the markings of a gangland hit. I read that and was like, ooh, Sydney's going to love this. It's got her organized crime piece. (laughs) Yes, I did love that personally. I did. The first step the police took was to dig into Peter's background to see if he had any connections to, like, the gangster mobster underworld. Peter had a minor record in 1948 for bookmaking. And if you're like me, I was like, oh, does that mean he was just, like, placing bets with a bookie? So I Googled it. Uh, No, he was working as a bookie, taking bets. Uh, But it was nothing super intense. It was years before nothing since he had been in the Los Angeles area or anything really connecting him to organized crime there. The next step was for police to try to interview friends and family of Peter's, but this all resulted in really nothing at first. There was no suspicious or criminal activity in his background, and it truly seemed like the man had no enemies. So again, it was really just kind of leading nowhere. A little bit on Peter and Betty. They had met back in New York in the late 1940s. He had come home from serving as a Marine, was working as a truck driver. When he met Betty, she was a divorcee with two children, but Peter did not mind. They married in the early 1950s, and by 1956, they moved to Los Angeles to create a new life together. Here in L.A., where the story is taking place, they opened two beauty shops together, and from all accounts, outside looking in, they really did have a picture-perfect life. However, Peter and Betty had split up temporarily a little recently, and by everyone's accounts, it was Betty that needed space, and she had moved in with a friend while her and Peter figured out if they could make it work. Obviously, they're living together when this incident took place, they did decide to move forward with their relationship. Betty, though, was so shook up about the murder that she actually remained sedated for days until she made herself available for police questioning. So all this information the cops are kind of gathering from other people, and once they finally sat down and kind of talked with Betty, it came up, obviously, that if, you know, any enemies of Peter's, if there was anyone Betty thought would want to hurt him. And the only person Betty named was her friend, Joan Rabel, which all she said to police was it was a family friend. The police decided to pick up Joan and questioned her, but by all accounts, she had an alibi. Her car was in the driveway that night and she was at home. Witnesses even corroborated the story that she was at home that night, and there's really nothing to hold her, tie her to the crime, except obviously Betty suspecting she might want to hurt Peter. So they released her. Again, case was just kind of getting cold. No real leads. But after about a month after the shooting, a confidential tip came in that would really change the trajectory of the case altogether. 
basically the police were told they should check a lockbox at a downtown department store for evidence on the case. When they checked out the lockbox, they actually found a 38 caliber gun, which ballistics then confirmed was a match to the weapon which killed Peter Fabiano. Serial number was checked, and this led police to a real viable suspect because it was registered. This led detectives to 43-year-old Goldine Pizer, who, when arrested in her Hollywood home, immediately confessed to the crime. <laughs> Goldine felt terrible, admitted it was good to get it off her chest when she was telling police officers what happened. I she, loved that for her. Yeah, me too. <laughs> it's a relief to get it off my mind. That's every, like, every article literally mentioned that, that I could find. Yes. And I was like, okay, this woman definitely needed to tell her story. Which makes me feel like she was the one that called the tip in. <laughs> I also low-key kind of thought that something like that was going on. Like, that she was tipping it off. And I feel like if if the police wouldn't have, like acted on that tip then she probably just would have went and told someone or like ended up confessing anyway because she was like needed to tell somebody i agree yeah it definitely it definitely felt like that i um i couldn't find anything that ever came out if she was the one that made the tip but i was like she, she called it in and we'll get to why i think so in a minute too or like another reason why i guess So, Goldine advised the police detectives that one of her close friends had talked her into committing the murder. This close friend was Joan Rabel. So, Betty was right in her suspicions. Goldine herself was a lab tech at an L.A. Children's Hospital and was described by everyone as a meek woman. Basically, what had happened was Joan and Goldine had planned the murder for several months, determining all the factors, including the method how they should kill him, planning a getaway car, all of it. Joan constantly described Peter Fabiano as a vile, evil man. She told Goldine that he was was dealing narcotics and he was abusive to his wife. And that he was ruining everyone's lives around him. She had essentially convinced Goldine that he was dangerous and needed to die. And that's exactly what these two women set out to do. It turned out Goldine had purchased a 38 special from a gun shop in Pasadena in September. So more than a month before the murder. So it does kind of corroborate that they were planning for a while. Joan had paid for the gun and Goldine had held on to it until Halloween night when Joan arrived to pick her up in a borrowed car. I made a note that would explain why her car was in the driveway that night to help with an alibi. And later on, police did get additional witnesses to confirm that they saw her leave her home or like friends who said she wasn't there. And they did end up eventually confirming with the woman whose car Joan borrowed. So it was a nice try at first. (laughs) 
the two women dressed up in various random clothing, makeup, and masks for a costume purpose and drove to the Fabiano household. Here they sat outside in the car until all the lights went out in the house. After Goldine shot Peter through the paper bag, she ran back to the car and before driving off, Joan supposedly kissed her and said thank you. I included that part because I think it's really important to note that although never officially confirmed, it is heavily implied that Joan and Goldine were romantically involved, which is why Goldine went along with it so easily. The two women took off and drove to a spot where they burned the clothes they were wearing. Then they took the car back to the friend of Jones, who she had borrowed it from, parked it on the street, and went their separate ways to their own homes. Joan told Goldine before walking away, forget you ever knew me. It's just like a bit dramatic, in my opinion. (laughs) Very fucking dramatic. But I guess this whole story is like a lot. (laughs) So the next day after the murder, Goldine realized she still had the gun and panicked since she didn't know what to do with it. She decided to go to a downtown L.A. department store, rented a lockbox and put the gun in there, which is my other point. It sounded like Goldine was the only person who knew that gun was there. Yes, unless, like, for some off chance, someone saw her go and rent this locker and was like, oh, why are you putting that in there? But I doubt that. Uh, same. (laughs) So that's why it definitely made me feel like, potentially, Goldine was the one that called in the tip. (laughs) So, why Peter Fabiano? (laughs) It seems pretty random at kind of a glance. Uh, Joan had worked for the Fabianos in one of their beauty salons at one point in time, which is where she met Peter and Betty. She actually became super close with the couple, and she became such good friends with Betty that when her marriage was rocky and not working out, she and she needed some space, she moved in with Joan. The way Joan saw it was that Peter stood in the way of their friendship. Um, there were a lot of claims by people close to them that they were romantically involved with each other. Friends of Be- friends of Peter's who knew of the affair would actually say he was threatened by Joan because he felt like she was going to steal his wife away from him and he did not want that relationship to continue. Just months before his death, Peter and Betty reconciled, but there were conditions of getting back together. He had asked Betty to end her friendship with Joan, and she was not allowed to mention her name around him ever again, let alone have any contact with her. Betty actually readily agreed. By this time, she wanted her marriage and life back, and she gladly did as he pleased. She cut off all contact and communication with Joan and moved back into her home with Peter. So it's really important for me to note that in 1957, 
homosexuality was still legal in California. So even like reading more modern articles that have written about this, they'll reference the older articles that came out at the time and they will refer to the women as abnormal, <laughs> which apparently was a common term for like lesbian at the time when referring to lesbian women. But they really, they alluded to it, but they would never directly say anything. So I think that's why it's hard to corroborate a lot of this romantically involved side, I think, because they all kind of kept it a secret. Betty was previously married before Peter. Joan and Goldine were also divorcees, which is implied that they married and divorced in order to be able to not be questioned more when they lived their lives on their own. We'll put it that way. <laughs> um, it was it was definitely interesting reading the articles because, like I said, nothing's like concretely pointed out but it is heavily implied that although Goldine and Joan were friends Joan then after the, her breakup with Betty like essentially I can't think of the word she essentially um, tried to convince Goldine <laughs> to be in a relationship with her and almost as if like this was her bounce back from Betty and also she was going to use that relationship from with Goldine for her advantage. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. <laughs> I know I just went on like a rant tangent. You did. <laughs> I just I just think it's really interesting because a lot of articles don't really pinpoint it. Right. And so then, like, I don't know if you read any. I only, I read, like, five or six articles, and only, like, one would give me one part of the story, and another would give me another part of the story. And I think, yeah. to this day, it's hard to, like, pinpoint exactly all of the details of this love triangle square. <laughs> I think that's how most, like, older cases are, though, because you only have, like, XO amount of stories and then or like newspaper articles from them but then people talk about it later so then the story kind of changes or evolves or, into something else yeah and even that like more information could potentially come out later on so I think it's hard because you don't really know the depths of their relationship but it definitely, by all accounts, seems like it was just kind of a fling to Betty. And it was a very serious thing to Joan. The reason behind wanting Peter Fabiano dead never came up, which seems shocking. Uh, no one is sure if it was a way to punish Betty for leaving her or if it was punishing Peter for taking Betty away from her. It really could be either one. While incarcerated pending trial, both Goldine and Joan were examined by three different psychiatrists I saw. Essentially, the first question they had was if these women could stand trial due to their sexual orientation, because at the time, as I mentioned, it was illegal. And so they thought that might make them crazy. <laughs> what a world. <laughs> Um, 
they both were deemed sane for the record. <laughs> but the doctor who did this characterized Goldine as a passive person who became a handy tool or putty in the hands of her friend. And the same doctor diagnosed Joan as schizoid. So there was a trial. Originally, the grand jury indicted both women for Peter's murder. Goldine took the stand on trial as she cried and told the events of the crime and explained she was convinced to commit this awful crime by a friend who painted this man as a symbol of evil. Joan refused to testify, and originally Goldine was actually claiming insanity, and Joan just claimed she was innocent with no real proof, as she claimed, tying her to the crime. Eventually, though, both women decided they did not want to face a trial. So on March 11th, 1958, both Goldine and Joan pleaded guilty to second-degree murder. They were only sentenced to five years to life in prison. And many people believe the reason Joan took the plea deal and never testified for her own defense was due to the fact that she was a lesbian and that in itself was a crime at the time. So she did not want to incriminate herself anymore. And that's my story. I thought it was going to be way longer than that. I probably just rambled a lot. <laughs> no, that wasn't too long. I have some fun facts, but what did I miss that you would like to add? Yeah, I do have a couple things. Um... So one thing that stuck out about Joan to me was in the trial and in those hearings and whatnot that they had before, um, you know, putting them in jail. I can't think of the words today. Um, Joan was very same. Stone you and first. I are in the same same place. <laughs> I am exhausted, people. <laughs> it is Friday. Um, yeah. <laughs> She was very stone-faced, and she had been, like, reported wearing a very strange smile during her trial, which, even though she was deemed to not be, like, you know, crazy enough that she couldn't stay in trial, people were still kind of questioning what the hell was going on with her. Yeah, and I saw that she was, like, every time she was escorted from the courtroom, she was, like, smiling. Yes. She felt like people were coming to see her. I was like, ooh, not a good sign. No. A um, couple other things I wanted to add in there. that So they had mentioned that Goldine was wearing like a Halloween costume when she had approached the home and killed Peter Fabiano. And it said that she was wearing blue jeans, a khaki jacket, red gloves, very heavy makeup, and a mask that was, like, the one that Robin, like, Batman and Robin would wear. <laughs> so that really completed the, the picture for me, and I loved that. I'm glad you listed it, because I just said odd clothes that made up a costume. Because I was like, I don't even get it. Like, what is the co- costume? <laughs> she was Robin from Batman and Robin. The gloves? Come on. But in jeans and a khaki jacket? Who wears a cold. khaki jacket? It was chilly. Not in October in Los Angeles. It was an October night. It was brisk. Okay. But who those wears people, khaki jackets? Is that a those thing? Those people, back in the day probably, those people in LA be wearing like jackets all the time. Weird. 
They're very weird. It's middle of October and I wore a sweatshirt today and I was sweating. I have a t-shirt and jeans on. <laughs> I don't know. It's, I mean, I'm I'm in a cold state, so <laughs> we're in cold states. It's Whatever. True, it's true. I'm getting hung up on this khaki jacket. There's always something. <laughs> in one case, I get hung up on the khaki jacket. <laughs> and another thing. So it's reported. So Betty and Peter had the that beauty business. Um, after Peter's death, Betty had sold that beauty business. And it's unknown, but it has been mentioned in several occasions or, like, theorized that Betty might have been possibly a part of her husband's death or known about it prior to it happening. Ooh, this is one of my fun facts. (laughs) Scandal. Yes, which is why it's such, like, a big scandal. So, she was never arrested or tried in any connection with the murder, but... Joan never testified. She never gave a real motive or anything. So no one really knows if Betty was ever com- uh, connected to this or not or had anything to do with it. Yeah, it just seems a little, I mean, everything just seems a little odd. Like, that was her friend. I understand, like, you know, Peter said not to see her anymore. Maybe she was upset about that. Maybe she was a part of hey, Joan, do you have any friends who might be able to do this for us? And then it was like, maybe I shouldn't have done that afterwards, and maybe she regretted it. Well, and I, I guess, like, the thing I'm hung up on the most is, like, Betty was divorced once before Peter, so mm-hmm. it's not like, you know, sometimes we see this where someone doesn't want to get divorced, and they they're whatever twisted, fucked-up reason you know, they can't get divorced or they don't want to be divorced and be, like, looked down upon in society, especially back in that time. So that was part of it, like, okay, well, she's been divorced before, so, like, would she really just take a hit out on her husband? If, (laughs) you know what I mean? I guess that was, like, a weird thing for me. Maybe, I mean. But maybe. We don't know. Because it's weird to get... It's weird to get divorced, like you said, though. Like, maybe she didn't want to get divorced again. That's it's true. To, it's easier to kill your husband than it is to... And then you get 100% of his things instead of 50%. Yeah, and just to have to deal <laughs> with, I guess, like, the... It potentially coming out that she had an yeah. affair with a woman. I guess that actually can make a lot of sense. Yeah, so we really don't know to this day whether Betty was involved or not. and. Unfortunately, we'll never find out because Betty never remarried and she passed away in 1999. Lived to the ripe age of, I don't have the exact age, but she was in her 80s. Yeah, I think she was like 88 or something. She was up there. Yes. And there were no traces of Joan after she was incarcerated. Obviously, it's presumed she was released eventually, but no one really, I mean, nothing I could find tracked her down or what happened to her, and I tried to find it. Goldine was released from prison in 1971, and in 1971, which is just 14 years after the murder, was an officer in the Miracle Mile chapter of the Professional Women's Club. Wow. So Miracle Mile is just like an area 
in Los Angeles. Professional Women's Club basically creates opportunities for professional women to make connections that inspire personal and professional growth, support businesses and personal goals, and enrich lives. So it's just an extracurricular activity. Yeah. Interesting. Their advocacy is a global, they're a global advocate of economic justice, human rights, and the health of all girls and women. So basically she was like a, an officer in the LA area for this club that is nationwide still to this day. Wow. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. So she went on to like try to do good and make up for it. She passed away in Los Angeles in 1998 and she was 83 at the time. Um, I do, I don't want to say I feel bad, but I do kind of feel bad when you listen or read the story because it seems like she basically got conned into doing this murder. She really was convinced she had never met Peter Fabiano and she really put her faith and trust in Joan who had convinced her that he was a terrible man. And I can say by all evidence, there is no evidence that what Joan said was true. No, it sounds like just a lot of, you know, that that had become her favorite topic of conversation. So Goldine was just like, oh, this must be true. Like, this is all she talks about. Like, she's saying all these terrible things about this individual. Like, why would she lie about that? This is my friend. Yeah, Goldine said it seemed like she was pretty obsessed at that point. That's Mm -hmm. all she, like, as you said, that's all she talked about. So, wild. This is known as the trick or treat murder, folks. What a name. Trick or treat. So, if anyone rings. I'll be honest. Oh, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, if anyone rings your doorbell at 11 o'clock, don't bring the candy bowl. Go back to bed. I I was about to say, I'll be honest. I don't think I'm going to answer the door after 11 anyways on Halloween. I mean, I don't think a normal person would, but... That's weird. It's creepy. Maybe they had different (laughs) rules back then. True. It was a Thursday night, in case I didn't mention that. I think I did at the beginning. I feel like that's extra late. Like, maybe a Friday or Saturday, but, like, as a kid, I think I was home by, like, 8.39, maybe at the latest. When I, like, here, like, trick-or-treating ends at, like, 7 o'clock. So, like, if you're after that, like, get away from my door. You're not supposed to be here. Yeah, it, I'm super early nowadays, too. But I feel like as a kid, I remember being out later. But maybe it's just because it felt late because I was a kid. I don't know. I can't tell anymore. I feel like it just it feels late right now. Oh. <laughs> uh-huh. And for the record, folks, it's not even 8 p.m. on Friday. <laughs> I feel like when I was a kid, it was on like a Sunday afternoon. Like it wasn't even dark out. <laughs> okay, it was, like it was dark here. 3 p.m. on like a sun the Sunday before Halloween. Like, ooh. I was always excited because I got to stay up till like 10, 11 o'clock on Halloween night. Yeah, I've been trying to go to bed my entire life. I was the kid even on, like, New Year's Eve that would be like, Mom, do I have to stay up until midnight? Can I please go to bed? (laughs) Well, moral of the story, don't answer the door when someone rings the doorbell or knocks. 
nope. after 11. Keep the candy do to not, yourself. Zero out of ten, do not recommend. Keep the candy to yourself. Don't bring the bowl to the kids or the murderers that. at your door. <laughs> wow, I think this was a good one. We're getting y'all ready for taking little kiddos trick-or-treating or passing out candy or whatever you do on Halloween. Or getting murdered. Please don't. <laughs> is that, is that not, not the right context? <laughs> no. <laughs> That's not what I was aiming for. <laughs> oh, man. Well, you got a <laughs> spooky season indeed. You got a joke and a fact for us or what? <laughs> of course I do. What do you want to hear? I think I want to end with a joke again. So hit me with the fact. So both Mexico and the United States have a national taco day. Mexico's is on March 31st and the United States is, is on October 4th. Which yeah, just passed. <laughs> we celebrated National Taco Day, folks, by launching our merch. Yeah. We did. Yep. Okay, hit me with a joke. What do ducks dip their tortilla chips in? What? Quackamole. <laughs> All I was thinking was like quackso. <laughs> then I was like, that doesn't sound good. <laughs> quackso. That was like quack and queso. <laughs> so that's why I laughed and said what I knew it was gonna be quack something. Oh. Quacko. <laughs> I Quackle. love that. <laughs> that's funny. Quackamole. Quackamole and cheese. Oh, man. Well, if you enjoyed this episode, folks, you can head over to our website, tacosandtequiliapodcast.com. It has an episode guide with links for all of our Spotify episodes, our info, our covers that we post, the little folder covers that we post on Instagram with each case. And it's got a link to our merch store. <laughs> I don't have anything else to offer today. Just spooky noises. <laughs> spooky call noises. Me a, call me a sound machine. Okay. Um, our merch store, you can find a lot of cool variety of products. Bear with us on sizes. <laughs> It's I a struggle, heard, guys. I have heard reports that our tie-dye shirts are only offering two sizes. My butt will not fit in a small. So, <laughs> we're working on it. Yeah. We're, um, it's a learning process. It's a struggle, let me tell you. I've almost broke my computer about four times now. <laughs> we'll get there, though. And thank you for bearing with us. Yes, thank you. You can also find us on Facebook, Tacos and To Kill You Podcast. We post funny things sometimes, but mostly it's our teasers for our episodes. And when new episodes drop, you can also see all of our pictures there and on Instagram. Tacos uh, and 
to kill you. I got it. You said you're just spooky noises today, man. Ah, you stole my move. I just figured you'd be making spooky noises in the background. <laughs> Quack. <laughs> I'm leaving this all in. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> um, and then, Cindy, do you want to say the slide in your DMs part? Or you, you, should always, <laughs> you should always slide in my DMs. I can't send you spooky noises back, but I can send you spooky ghosts back. Or gifts. Can we send or, gifts on Instagram? I don't I know. I think so. I could probably send you a gift. I don't um, know how it works because you're usually messaging on, a, on Instagram. You're messaging Sydney. <laughs> that's true. That <laughs> I don't true. check my personal Instagram messages for days. <laughs> I'm really it's funny too because I really I feel like I'm worse with uh my personal messages but I always check the tacos and tequila ones well shout out to Sydney for always staying on top of it and all our merch ideas and the creative ones we have are all thanks to Sydney so I appreciate you man props to you thank you thank you <laughs> I appreciate you too thanks <laughs> and all the spooky noises Woo! Yes! (laughs) Stay tuned for more spooky noises coming every Tuesday, probably only for the rest of the month, but maybe longer. Who knows? (laughs) (laughs) Just Halloween pushed all the way through the rest of the year. I wear spooky Halloween-themed clothes more than just October, but it's only acceptable in October. If I go out in July or February wearing, like, a Pennywise or Halloween shirt, people are like, look at that freaking weirdo. And I'm like, yeah, I'm right here. But (laughs) it's more socially acceptable when you do it in October. Spooky time can be any time. Yeah, nobody questions it in October. It's just normal then. Facts. (laughs) That should be a new shirt. Spooky time can be any time. Ooh. <laughs> let, me wor- let me work on that. I got to figure out the sizes first before I can throw <laughs> out more ideas, man. I'll write it down. Uh. <laughs> well, thanks for bearing with us on this um, slap happy ending here at a... We're recording at 8 o'clock on a Friday, and this is what Cindy and I sound like, so... <laughs> I feel like it's 3 o'clock in the morning. (laughs) Same. This has been a long-ass week. We are glad we will have this episode out to you guys on time. (laughs) And tune in next Tuesday for more. See you then. Bye. Ha 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 ha!